Hello, this is Dr. Pengxian Qian, the editor in chief of Heart Rhythm. Thank you for listening to the August 2019 issue of the Heart Rhythm podcast. You can find and subscribe to this podcast by searching for Heart Rhythm podcast on iTunes, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please note that there is no space between heart and rhythm. In addition. Translations of this podcast in seven other languages are available each month at HeartRhythmJournal.com website. The featured article this month is an original article titled "Grapefruit Juice Prolongs the QT Interval of Healthy Volunteers and Patients with Long QT Syndrome" by Chiring et al. from Tel Aviv University, Israel. An accompanying video author interview conducted by our online editor. Dr. Daniel Mooring can be found at the www.hotrhythmjournal.com website. The authors performed an open-label, randomized crossover study. They found that the ingestion of one of two liters of pink grapefruit juice led to significant QTC prolongation, and the prolongations was greater in females than in males, and particularly marked. In patients with Long QT syndrome, I've been following a 20-year-old woman with pathogenic KCNH2 mutation in my outpatient clinic. Consistent with children's report, my patient had significant QTC prolongation after consuming a large quantity of grapefruit juice. In light of these findings, patients with Long QT syndrome should be advised to avoid grapefruit juice. The next paper is titled "Feasibility of Percutaneous Epicardial Mapping and Ablation for Refractory Atrial Fibrillation" by Jiang et al. from UCLA. The authors performed combined epicardial-endocardial mapping of AF in 18 patients via an inferior subxiphoid percutaneous approach. Among them, four. Demonstrated non-transmural atrial low-voltage regions with relative epicardial sparing in the posterior left atrial wall. Transmural isolation of the posterior wall was achieved by using epicardial voltage data for guidance. The authors conclude that a percutaneous epicardial approach for mapping and ablation of the left atrium is feasible in the EP lab during endocardial catheter ablation of AF, and may be useful. As an adjunctive approach in refractory cases, the paper is interesting because it shows the contribution of epicardial mapping and ablation in persistent atrial fibrillation. Jonner et al. from Geneva University Hospitals, Switzerland, wrote the following article titled "Inducibility at Redo Ablation: Colon, Electrophysiological Evidence of Extrapulmonary Vein Substrate Progression." The authors attempted burst pacing to induce atrial fibrillation. Inducibility progression was defined at AF induction at further steps of redo ablation compared to de novo ablation. The results show that patients with recurrent AF after first ablation exhibit inducibility progression more frequently at redo compared to patients with recurrent organized atrial tachycardia. Inducibility progression correlates with more advanced recurrent AF type. Larger LA volumes and progressive RA enlargement. 
These findings suggest that changes in post-PVI AF inducibility may accurately uh, indicate progression of AF-maintaining substrate outside of the PVs. Next up is the effect of beta blockers on triggering symptomatic atrial fibrillation by anger or stress by Lampert et al. Yale University. The authors performed a prospective controlled electronic dairy-based study of emotions preceding episodes of atrial fibrillation in 91 patients for a year. Overall, the likelihood of an AF episode was significantly higher during anger or stress. This effect, however, was significantly attenuated in the patients on beta blockers. These findings can be explained by the increased sympathetic tone and decreased vagal activity during psychological stress. Anger and stress may be a modifiable risk for atrial fibrillation. The following article, titled Ischemic Ventricular Tachycardia from Below the Posterior Medial Papillary Muscle, a Particular Entity, was uh, written by Enriquez uh, et al. from Queen's University, Kingston, Canada. The authors studied 10 patients with recurrent ischemic VT evidence of inferior scar and a failed endocardial ablation. Epicardial mapping successfully mapped 11 inducible VTs to the epicardium underlying the posterior medial papillary muscle. Among these VTs, 8 had a right bundle branch block morphology, while 3 exhibited a left bundle branch block morphology. An inferior QRS pattern was present in 10. Non-inducibility was achieved in most patients. The authors conclude that in patients with inferior ischemic scar, VT may arise from the area underneath the posterior medial papillary muscle, limiting endocardial-only ablation. This type of VT is a particular entity that needs to be studied with intracardiac echo for substrate identification and epicardial mapping. The next article is titled Increased Risk of late pacemaker implantation after ablation for atrial ventricular nodal reentry tachycardia by Kisek et al. from Umia University, Sweden. All patients undergoing first-time ablation for AVNRT in Sweden from 2004 to 2014 were identified from the Swedish ablation registry. The cohort was compared to patients ablated for an accessory pathway and to matched controls. About 1.4% of AVNRT patients, 0.7% of accessory pathway patients, and 0.4% of controls required pacemaker implantation within 30 days after the procedure. The authors conclude that the risk of late pacemaker implantation after AVNRT ablation was low, but three times higher compared to control population. However, this report did not include details about the ablations. Therefore, the mechanism of these observations remain unclear. Next up is iatrogenic aortic regurgitation after radiofrequency ablation of idiopathic ventricular arrhythmias originating from the aortic valvular region by Shinoda et al. from University of Tsukuba. Japan. 
After ablation, mild aortic regurgitation occurred in 5 of 32 patients with PVCs arising from the aortic cusps versus only 1 of 13 control group patients with papillary muscle ablation. The occurrence of aortic regurgitation was associated with a longer ablation time and higher average output. No patients required any additional medical management or surgical intervention. The authors conclude that iatrogenic mild aortic regurgitation after ablation in the aortic root occurred with a noticeable prevalence which was associated with extensive ablation both above and below the aortic cusps, as well as caster-related mechanical factors. Patients after aortic cusp ablation need careful follow-up, but it should be noted that none in this series required surgical intervention of the aortic regurgitation. Manawar et al. from University of Adelaide and the Royal Adelaide Hospital, Australia, wrote the following article titled Implication of Ventricular Pacing Burden and Atrial Pacing Therapies on the Progression of Atrial Fibrillation. This is a meta-analysis of 21 randomized controlled trials with over 8,000 patients. They demonstrated that algorithms to reduce the frequency of ventricular pacing did not significantly suppress AF progression. The atrial pacing therapy algorithms could suppress PAC burden but did not prevent AF progression. This meta-analysis is limited by the heterogeneity of the study population included in the study. It remains possible that reducing ventricular pacing burden may prevent AF in certain specific patient populations. The next paper is titled Internal Insulation Breaches in an Implantable Cardioverter Defibrillator Lead with redundant conductors by Hauser et al. from Minneapolis Heart Institute Foundation. The authors searched the FDA multi-database internal insulation breaches and other failure modes. The primary cause of Durata lead failure was insulation breach, which was responsible for 11 failures to treat VT and VF. The authors conclude that Durata ICD leads are susceptible to internal insulation breaches that may result in failure to treat VT-VF. These findings suggest that high-voltage testing of Durata leads may be indicated during pulse generator replacement or when an insulation defect is suspected. Next up is periodic repolarization dynamics as risk predictor after myocardial infarction by Rizas et al. from University Hospital Munich, Germany. Periodic repolarization dynamics is a novel ECG phenomenon that refers to sympathetic activity associated with low-frequency modulations of cardiac repolarization. The authors prospectively studied 455 survivors of a myocardial infarction with 27 months of follow-up duration. Increased periodic repolarization dynamics was significantly and independently associated with both total and cardiovascular mortality. This study validated the results of prior retrospective studies, confirming the clinical importance of periodic repolarization dynamics in risk stratification. 
Next is a paper titled "Exercise Testing Oversights: Underlying Missed and Delayed Diagnosis of Catecholaminergic Polymorphic Ventricular Tachycardia in Young Sudden Cardiac Arrest Survivors." This paper was written by Judy Sessi and Ackerman from the Mayo Clinic. The authors retrospectively reviewed 101 young sudden cardiac arrest survivors with otherwise structurally normal hearts. Among them, 15 were ultimately diagnosed with CPVT. One third has a delay in diagnosis because an exercise stress test was either never performed, or a stress test was performed but the patient was misdiagnosed. Exercise testing and/or catecholamine provocation testing should be standard of care following sudden cardiac arrest in the young, especially. If the sudden cardiac arrest occurred with exertion or emotion, good at all from Guys and Son Thomas NHS Foundation Trust, London, UK, wrote the following article titles:、uh, "Mean Entropy Predicts Implantable Cardioversal Defibrillator Therapy Using Cardiac Magnetic Resonance Texture Analysis of Scar Heterogeneity." The authors studied 114 consecutive patients who underwent CMR imaging. Prior to ICD implantation, and followed them for a median of 955 days. They found that scar heterogeneity, quantified by mean entropy using CMR texture analysis, was an independent predictor of appropriate ICD therapy in the mixed cardiomyopathy cohort and ischemic cardiomyopathy only group. The results suggest a potential role. For CMR texture analysis in predicting ventricular arrhythmias and risk stratifying patients for ICD implantation, this paper also suggests that ventricular scar heterogeneity plays a role in arrhythmogenesis. The next article is written by Wang et al. from my own research laboratory at Indiana University. The paper is titled. Anti-arrhythmic and pro-arrhythmic effects of subcutaneous nerve stimulation in ambulatory dogs. We prospectively randomized 22 dogs into five different output groups, ranging from 0 to 3.5 milliamp, for subcutaneous nerve stimulation, with a neurostimulator and electrodes implanted under the thoracic skin. The results show that in ambulatory dogs. Low output subcutaneous nerve stimulation causes cardiac nerve sprouting, and increases plasma norepinephrine concentration, and the duration of paroxysmal atrial tachycardia episodes. In contrast, high output subcutaneous nerve stimulation is antiarrhythmic. Electrical stimulation of the skin can potentially be used for arrhythmic control, but can also be proarrhythmic, as in other forms of therapy. Next up is paper titled "Minimally Invasive Percutaneous Epicardial Placement of a Prototype Miniature Pacemaker with Lead Lead Under Direct Visualization," a feasibility study in an infant porcine model. In infants, pacemaker implantation is limited to epicardial lead placement and use of an abdominal generator pocket. The authors propose a minimally invasive solution using a prototype miniature pacemaker with a steroid-eluting lead lead that can be fixed 
to the epicardial endothoracoscopy. This was successfully tested in 12 piglets, showing this approach was safe and avoided open chest surgery and the creation of an abdominal generator pocket. This new technology may one day reduce morbidity associated with pacemaker implantations in infants. These original articles are followed by three reviews. The first was written by Hasagher et al. from the University of Bordeaux, France on idiopathic ventricular fibrillation with repetitive activity inducible within the distal Purkinje system. The second review was by Capecci et al. from University of Siena, Italy, titled Autoimmune and Inflammatory Potassium Channel Channelopathies in Cardiac Arrhythmias, Clinical Evidence and Molecular Mechanisms. A third review is titled Alternative left ventricular pacing approaches for an optimal cardiac resynchronization therapy, written by Galen et al. from University of Rennes, France. There is an unknown of the month, written by Ho and Luke from Thomas Jefferson University Hospital, titled Termination of an Unusual Long RP Tachycardia What is a Mechanism? Sherlock and Poe from University of Oklahoma wrote a Viewpoint article titled The 50-Year Anniversary of the His Bundle Recording and the Pacing in Clinical Medicine. This month's HRS 40th Anniversary Viewpoint was written by Dr. Andrew Witt of Columbia University and is titled Present at Creation, My Viewpoint on the Origins of Cellular and Clinical Electrophysiology of Arrhythmias. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. For Heart Rhythm, I'm Editor-in-Chief Dr. Pen Shen Chen.